Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, I'm Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at Cato. Uh, in order to craft appropriate policies uh, to avoid the next future financial crises, I believe we need to have a firm understanding of the factors that contributed to this crisis. Uh, a lot of these factors, such as loose monetary policy, I think are widely accepted, widely understood, uh, even if they're not being dealt with in Washington or in Capitol Hill. Uh, an area that I think is less understood among these forces or what are the things that drove the substantial decline in underwriting standards in our mortgage markets? Uh, our forum today is an attempt to ask the question whether the Community Reinvestment Act had any role in this decline in mortgage underwriting standards. Uh, while I do not expect our forum today to settle this debate, uh, it is our hope that we can shift the focus of this debate to issues of data, to issues of analysis, and away from the politics and emotion that have all too often driven discussions on CRA. Uh, we are very fortunate today have a very distinguished and very knowledgeable panel uh, from all points of the spectrum on this. Our primary speaker will be Edward Pinto. Edward is currently a consultant to the mortgage industry. Previously, Edward served as chief credit officer at Fannie Mae. Um, our first discussion on this will be Bruce Morrison. From 1983 to 1991, Bruce served in the House of Representatives, where he served on both the Banking and Judiciary Committees. Uh, after his service in the House, Bruce also served as chairman of the Federal Housing Finance Board. He currently chairs the Morrison Public Affairs Group here in Washington. Our next discussant is Robert Lighton, who is a senior fellow at, for economic studies at the Brookings Institute, as well as vice president for research and policy at the Kauffman Foundation. Bob has a very long, distinguished record of government service. During the Clinton administration, he served as both associate director at OMB and as deputy assistant attorney general. Uh, maybe more relevant, he also served as a member of the Commission on the Causes of the Savings and Loan Crisis. Our next speaker, Mark Stam, is principal at Stam Mortgage Management. Mark brings over 30 years of experience in the mortgage origination business to this panel. Uh, he also brings us the perspective of a regulated lender who has actually had to be on the compliance end of CRA. Our final speaker this morning is John Taylor, president and CEO of the National Community Reinvestment Coalition. Uh, formed in 1990, NCRC represents over 600 national, state, and local organizations involved in community development. I want to welcome everybody and welcome our speakers and the podium is yours, Ed. Thank you, Mark, for that welcome and for arranging for um, this uh, opportunity to uh, talk about CRA. Maybe we should sit down there, so. Something should come on the screen, presumably. It's a little technical difficulties, but we'll have that. There we go. Ah, need to lower the uh, projector in the screen. I guess that helps. Well, while we're waiting, uh, there's a stack down here, um, and that's the materials that I've gone through relative to CRA that don't really say anything conclusively or accurately or um, uh, usefully about the performance, the actual performance of CRA loans uh, in the United States. 
and I have a very small stack of things that are very useful, um, but it's very small. And uh, that's the, the stack that really doesn't shed much light on it. And, and I would add that, in my opinion, the, the view of the regulators uh, adding a fourth category has been see no evil, speak no evil, hear no evil, and ask no evil, um, because they really don't ask what the performance, the actual performance of loans uh, is in any uh, organized or systematic way that can then be reported and compared to other um, uh, information. So we're still waiting. It should be just a minute. I've organized my remarks around what I'm calling the myths of CRA. And because I think that's one of the problems, and as, as Mark indicated, uh, we can't hope to fathom what happened if uh, we're creative, if we're facing a series of myths that overwhelm any ability to really get in and find out what happened uh, with, any, with a real degree of certainty and, and uh, confidence in the, uh, in the information. Oh, here we go. That's the next step. And I think we're ready to rock and roll. Okay. Establishing the role of Community Investment Act in the financial crisis. Uh, there have been a number of uh, high-profile individuals, President Obama among them, who have absolved CRA. Uh, some He indicated in the white paper that uh, was issued earlier this year that some have attempted to blame sub the subprime meltdown and the financial crisis on CRA and have argued that CRA must be weakened in order to restore financial stability. These claims and arguments are without any logical or evidentiary basis. It's not tenable that CRA could suddenly have caused an explosion in bad subprime loans more than 25 years after its enactment. Nobel laureate Paul Krugman uh, has recently made the same statement, as recently as November 2nd of this year. Zombies, zombies everywhere. One of the enduring myths of the financial crisis has been the claim that it was a result of A, Fannie and Freddie, B, the Community Reinvestment Act, which forced poor, helpless bankers to make loans to you-know-who. It's a myth that won't go away. Uh, he had earlier stated uh, the year before that Fannie and Freddie didn't do any subprime lending because they can't. The definition of a subprime loan is precisely a loan that doesn't meet that requirement imposed by law. Fannie and Freddie only buy mortgages issued to borrowers who made substantial down payments and carefully documented their income. He could not have been more wrong about the GSEs. Together, they held over $1.5 trillion of such loans and securities as of June 30, 2008, and had purchased trillions and trillions more uh, over the span of 15 years. So the first myth is CRA could not suddenly have caused an explosion in bad subprime loans more than 25 years after its enactment, the implication being that if CRA had bad effects, why did they take so long to show up? For the answer, we need look no further than page 8 of the National Community Reinvestment Coalition's CRA Commitments for 2007 uh, compendium, uh, which uh, John's uh, organization has been kind enough to uh, publish periodically. Over a 15-year period from 1977 to 1991, the cumulative amount of publicly announced CRA commitments totaled a little under $9 billion with a B. Those were in days when we talked about billions. Starting in 1992, the volume exploded. In 1992 alone, it was almost $34 billion, or four times as high. 
Over the 17-year period, 1992 to 2008, announced CRA commitments totaled $6 trillion. 94%, this is a very important point, 94% of these commitments can be traced to four banks. You know who the four banks are, City, Bank of America, Wells and Chase, and other banks that they purchased or merged with over time. And my question to answer uh, the administration's statement is, might a 680 times increase in volume for the 1992 to 2008 period over the 1977 to 1991 period be the beginning of an answer to the President's question? And I think it is. Uh, let me make uh, a clarification at this point. Uh, these, if you're familiar with mortgage lending, there's a term commitment and there's a term originations. A commitment is just that. It's a commitment to do something in the future, usually over a period of years. In the case of CRA, it might be five, seven, or ten years. Uh, in the case of CRA, uh, it could be a single-family loan. It could be a, a multifamily loan. It could be a, a, a um, commercial loan. But uh, 65 to 70 percent of CRA lending ends up getting done as single-family. That's where most of the loans are. And also 50 percent weight for a CRA uh, uh, score by a regulator is given based on single-family lending. So single-family is, is the main focus. Um, but then the loans get turned into originations, which is, again, what happens after you fulfill a commitment. Or in the case of CRA, you don't have to announce a commitment. You can just go straight to originating CRA loans. Um, these are just loans that were announced publicly that were tracked by uh, uh, NCRC. second myth contained in the white paper is that the self-denominated subprime was the cause of the financial crisis. And this is a, a very uh, common uh, myth. Uh, but Robert Schiller, I think, explained it well uh, when he warned of a housing bubble back in 2003. Uh, this predates the period that uh, most agree subprime really exploded in terms of huge volume increases. Um, which the White House itself said started more than 25 years after CRA's enactment in 1977, which would place the sometime ex subprime explosion sometime in 03-04, which most people agree 04 would have been the year. In his book, The Subprime Solution, Schiller observes, the housing bubble created the excesses of subprime, not the other way around. He goes on to attribute the cause of the bubble and its resulting crisis to the overpromotion of home ownership. And I, having been in this industry for 35 years, I've seen uh, excesses in lending that occur towards the end of a rise in house prices. In the late 70s, early 80s, particularly the early 80s, it happened again in the late 80s. Uh, and then it, of course, happened again in 04, 05, 06, 07. Third myth, CRA loans do not have the predatory characteristics that self-denominated subprime loans had, so they must be good loans. Well, this is a non sequitur. Uh, it basically says if it's not this, it's something else, and therefore they must be good, and it just doesn't hold. Uh, CRA had, admittedly, primarily fixed rate, normal rates. In fact, there were subsidized rates in most cases. Uh, no prepayment penalty. They had counseling. Subprime loans had arms, although more, actually more than half of the subprime loans currently outstanding are fixed rate, uh, according to the MBA. Uh, high interest rates, prepayment penalties, and generally, I presume, no counseling. Uh, and so the concept that CRA loans were, were so-called prime term, had prime term characteristics and therefore must have performed like a traditionally underwritten loan, again, is a, is a non sequitur. It doesn't, it, it's just a statement doesn't prove anything. 
Um, CRA loans generally were either or both low or no down payment or were made to borrowers with impaired credit, known as high-risk attributes, known high-risk attributes. Most had additional innovative or flexible underwriting terms, such as high debt-to-income ratios. As we shall see, performance has been and was still poor. In many cases, the lower interest rate merely allowed the borrower to purchase a larger home um, because at the end of the day, things were constrained by these high debt-to-income ratios, uh, which tended to allow the borrower to also uh, take out a larger loan, and the lower interest rate also facilitated that. Innovative or flexible underwriting standards are standards. That's a common myth about CRA. Uh, in fact, the regulators, the regulators require that uh, the definition of a CRA loan is really one that uses innovative or flexible standards. Uh, Fannie learned in the early 1980s that innovative and flexible standards really led to toxic lending. Uh, they had uh, uh, tremendous defaults occur in the early uh, 1980s. Uh, and in 1985, they greatly tightened their guidelines for low down payment loans. And I'm going to focus on those in particular. There were numerous uh, tightenings. I actually was the author of those tightenings, so I can speak firsthand about them. Uh, and other loans generally, we reduced uh, debt ratios, we tightened credit standards, we reduced seller contributions, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Again, there weren't any 97% loans back then, pri uh, conventional. Con uh, uh, private uh, conventional loans. There weren't any 100% loans. 95 was as high as you can go. Um, by the early 1990s, these underwriting standards and other guidelines had proven their worth. I actually I have the data that shows the loans performed extremely well. Uh, but a number of groups called them antiquated, called them archaic, called them a holdover from the 18th century. What they didn't realize is they were a holdover from the early 1980s when we had learned what worked and what hadn't worked in that experience and tried to learn from it. Uh, the, and, and as I said, we, I have information that demonstrates that these guideline changes actually worked and the performance of the loans uh, was excellent given that they were high-risk loans, but we were able to bring down their risk uh, characteristics to an acceptable uh, level that could be adequately priced and would keep people in their homes. Myth number five, originators of CRA loans do not need to retain loan risk. Um, one of the things I did when I was at Fannie Mae is, is I spent uh, off and on uh, parts of a three-year period working with Gail Sincata, who's known as the mother of CRA, to put together uh, a program that would allow Fannie Mae to purchase uh, CRA loans. At that time, they were being made by local lending institutions. And one of the requirements that Gail and I agreed upon was that um, we had to leave the risk on these loans with the local lender so they had skin in the game. Uh, I would uh, argue that, uh, uh, and I use the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, uh, which states that uh, certain pairs of physical properties, like position and momentum, cannot both be known to arbitrary precision. And so you can't measure the speed and, and, and uh, location of an atom simultaneously because uh, measuring one will affect the other. And I've created what I call the Pinto credit uncertainty principle. It's impossible to determine simultaneously both credit risk of an asset and its appropriate risk weight with any degree of accuracy or certainty. Uh, my classic case relates to Fannie and Freddie uh, where you get a capital arbitrage advantage by uh, the intersection of the GSE capital requirements, uh, which are, were enshrined by Congress in the 1992 GSE Act, and risk-based capital rules. Single-family mortgages are given a 50% haircut on the capital requirement because they're lower risk. Uh, and then 
uh, Fannie and Freddie mortgage-backed securities are given a further uh, 60%, I think it's, uh, yeah, 60% haircut from that, so they end up being only a 20% risk uh, or 1.6% capital out of the, versus 8%. Um, the, uh, as a result, uh, those uh, MBS securities that the agencies issued became very favored securities. They were considered low risk, and they were given a low risk capital requirement. And as a result, the demand for those securities uh, burgeoned, and uh, Fannie and Freddie were trying to keep up with this huge demand worldwide, it turned out. And as they did so, they were uh, going for uh, riskier and riskier loans, which then defeated the whole purpose of them being declared low risk under uh, the uh, risk-based capital requirements um, because of, of the uh, the process that was going on. The, uh, uh, an, eight, an estimated 80% of the CRA lending that was originated by, uh, um, uh, during the last uh, 10 or so years, uh, or probably eight years, was securitized or sold, uh, and an estimated two-thirds of all CRA loans uh, went to either the GSEs, Fannie and Freddie, or FHA, Ginny Mae. Uh, another 10 to 15% uh, ended up in subprime MBS securities, and uh, this left um, a small amount, uh, 10 or 15 percent, that was in the bank's portfolios that uh, uh, got moved around among banks, but today is still largely uh, in place in those portfolios. Uh, these executions left the seller with little or no responsibility for loan performance. The risk was transferred to the low-risk uh, asset, and as a result, uh, highly leverageable agency and MBS securities were used. CRA and Fannie's affordable housing mandates did not cause the housing bubble. This is a plot that uh, shows the CRA production. Now, this is actual my estimate of actual CRA origination, single family. We're not talking about commitments anymore. We're talking about my estimate of production. Uh, I started this process, actually, uh, one of our uh, discussants, uh, uh, Bob uh, Lighton, uh, actually did the, uh, um, the analysis that brought it up to uh, the late 1990s, and I was able to use that analysis along with a lot of other information, uh, information out of the NCRC uh, report, information uh, by seven or eight large banks that uh, had published information about their CRA production pursuant to those commitments, what those loans look like uh, in terms of single family versus uh, the other types of CRA, et cetera, uh, create a model that then allowed me to come up year by year and build on, uh, in effect, the work that, that Bob had done. And so that's the uh, top line. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm sorry. The top line are housing prices. Uh, the uh, uh, dotted line is the GSE volume, and the bottom line is the cumulative CRA production. So you see, uh, starting in about 1992-1993, um, the production starts uh, increasing slowly for Fannie and Freddie and for a CRA. And again, these aren't duplicate; these these aren't unique sets of loans. Fannie and Freddie ultimately, particularly by the early part of this decade, ended up purchasing a large percentage of the CRA production um, that was going on. So the supply was provided by the CRA Act. The demand was created by the Affordable Housing Act, uh, the uh, affordable housing provision that was cr uh, inserted in the GSE Safety and Soundness Act. This, uh, in my opinion, then created the seemingly unclosable uh, uh, affordability gap 
that occurred as house prices gained in uh, speed uh, in the late uh, 90s and, and the early part of this decade, and then lenders, as they normally do, uh, then race to try to close that affordability gap by reducing the credit worthiness of their underwriting, the credit uh, uh, of the underwriting, and to create more ability uh, to buy a home or to keep up with this growing uh, house price. Myth number seven, LTVs may be increased uh, without posing a risk to all homeowners. Um, I, I found an article, uh, homeowners of a new and attractive breed are plaguing the Federal Housing Administration these days, known as the walkaways. They are people who find themselves unable to meet their mortgage payments and solve the problem simply by moving out their belongings at night, drop their house key in the mailbox, and disappear, Time Magazine. This would be just another sad commentary on today's foreclosure nightmare, but the fact is it was published July 27, 1962. Uh, the article goes on to blame FHA for a growing epidemic of foreclosure, a topic that probably we'll save for another day. This actually is uh, a graph that was built off of an FDIC uh, chart that went through the early 90s sometime, and all the way back to 1991. I then uh, got the MBA information and brought it up to date. It shows the FHA annual foreclosure start rate annualized so, um, and how it has grown. And this is, in fact, what the uh, Time Magazine article was bemoaning um, because you can see a very large increase that occurs in the early 1960s uh, coinciding with the 1962 uh, Time Magazine article. Uh, there's a 30-fold increase from 1951 to, uh, 19, uh, to 2009 estimate of course, uh, FHA started in the 30s, so it was a seasoned uh, entity by the time 1951 rolled around. Uh, if uh, you took into account the denominator effect of the virtual uh, doubling in, eight, in 15 months of FHA's volume, uh, that number on the right, instead of being 4.4, would be closer to 9 uh, if it were done in a sort of historical basis. I dubbed this factor of this foreclosure level in, in some research I had done in 1991 uh, the FHA impact or FHA effect, and it, it dealt with the high level of low down payment lending in a particular neighborhood when measured against what the LTV of all the homeowners in the neighborhood were at the time you were, you were doing the measurement. And too little combined, combined equity among homeowners in a neighborhood leaves little uh, cushion to absorb the inevitable ups and downs in home prices, something that we're seeing nationwide today, but back uh, in um, uh, earlier times, this tended to be more concentrated in FHA uh, areas. FHA tended to be a new construction program. It tended to, it had uh, loan limits that were much lower than conventional loan limits, and so they tended to be in particular uh, neighborhoods where the prices uh, relative to the mortgage amount would work. Prices sink as demand plummets and supply soars. A stressed homeowner looks out the window and sees a seer for sale signs and adds his. Neighborhoods with high equity levels experiencing, experience plummeting demand. However, supply does not necessarily increase or soar because these homeowners don't have to sell. They have staying power. This helps protect the entire neighborhood, their, their neighbors. And that, to me, is, is the definition or, or what the FHA effect does that we're now experiencing, as I said, nationwide, because we now have, out of 53, 55, I mean, it's hard to get the exact number of mortgages in the United States, but it's somewhere in the, in the low to mid-50 million range. My estimate is 25 to 26 million of those loans are high risk. Subprime, Alt-A, 
um, and, and I define subprime as anything with impaired credit, which means it was either called subprime, which I call self-denominated subprime, or it had a FICO below 660, or it was Alt-A, which meant it didn't really comply with traditional uh, agency requirements. Uh, by definition, anything above a 95 is, is not traditional, uh, and 95s with uh, um, uh, loose underwriting, uh, as, as came into play at Fannie and Freddie, uh, would also be Alt-A. And then you have the traditional definitions of Alt-A having to do with uh, investor loans and, and uh, uh, no-doc, low-doc, and things of that nature. Myth number eight, house prices always go up. Uh, this is a history of house values that uh, Robert Schiller put together. Um, he actually had a, a, a bunch of uh, uh, graduate assistants uh, go through newspapers for 110 years and find out the same house selling time after time uh, and around the country and created – and he had some other uh, national data and local data, regional data, but he, where he had gaps, he actually went and looked at newspapers for sale uh, information in newspapers going back over 100 years – and created um, this plot, and this is in real dollars as opposed to what are now called nominal dollars, what we call dollars, which are not inflation-adjusted. Um, so a house could have cost $5,000 in 1942. It cost $250,000 three years ago, but in real dollars, what's the difference? And it, it, it didn't cost uh, 250000 overstates the uh, value. What this shows is that house prices have gone up. They've come down. We've actually had a, a very strong period of deflation. Uh, interestingly, it predates the Depression. Uh, house prices kind of moved a little bit sideways during the Depression um, in real dollars um, because the dollars themselves were deflating. Uh, but the big drop that occurred in the early teens of the last century was due to what we today think of as a uh, slow method of construction known as stick-built, or you get a bunch of two-by-fours delivered to the site and you start assembling the house. Uh, but back then, uh, that was a big innovation, to have uh, a factory-made two-by-fours delivered and all the other windows and everything else. And they actually, Sears Roebuck actually had uh, modular houses that they sold through Sears Roebuck uh, that were delivered. So there was a big decline in house prices. But you can see, after the war, uh, once um, uh, house prices uh, got back to the 100 line, uh, which was a huge jump, uh, it, it pretty much moved up and down within a band of 100 to 120. The two areas that I mentioned earlier, the late uh, 70s, early 80s, is the first peak um, of the three peaks on the right. The second one is the late 80s, early 90s. And then, of course, the last one in this chart hasn't been uh, continued to show the uh, decline uh, off the end of the cliff. Uh, uh, up to 2009, but as you know, uh, house prices have declined very substantially since uh, that peak. Uh, but certainly what stands out on this chart is an immense growth in house prices in real dollars that occurred in a very short period of time and had never occurred before uh, in uh, the United States at least. Uh, myth number nine uh, is that the financial crisis was the failure of the free market. Uh, I believe the financial crisis uh, was the, the fuse for it and the fuel that uh, drove it and drove the house prices that we saw earlier uh, was, was the result of a number of congressional policies, acts, regulatory uh, 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 regulations issued pursuant to those uh, acts and uh, policies. In 1992, Congress uh, required the affordable housing goals, imposed them on the GSEs, and, and I think a, a fatal error uh, gave uh, the authority to HUD to, to implement them and set them, and HUD was not given any limit 
uh, as to what they could do. And I remember saying back in 1992 or 1993, uh, HUD will keep coming back year after year and say, boy." I'm going to raise them next time. boy. I'm going to raise them next time. And so they just kept raising them and raising them. So they eventually went from 30 percent in the early 90s to uh, the uh, uh, 57 percent, I think, was the, the plan in 2007. CRA is local lending. Um, the problem here is the 94 percent of those commitments that I talked about ended up rolling up into four banks of which there are really seven or eight uh, were the big ones. They're listed, uh, five of them are listed here. I include Countrywide for a very uh, good reason. Countrywide was the first national lender to sign HUD's CRA-like Declaration of Financial Lending Principles and Best Practices back in 1994. They were very proud of that. And um, uh, that, was, uh, that HUD program came about as a compromise to keep the mortgage bankers out of being covered by CRA. So it was really the, the alternative to CRA. Um, CRA loans have performed well. This is the real uh, center of the myth. A 1996 study entitled Credit Risk, Credit Scoring, and Performance of Home Mortgages by the Fed's Division of Research and Statistics is the canary in the coal mine here. It's 25 or 30 pages. It's got two massive studies that the Fed undertook on their own. It reports all kinds of studies done by Freddie Mac, the mortgage insurance companies, uh, all kinds of experience with affordable housing. It, it goes on and on and on. Uh, but notwithstanding the overwhelming evidence that's in this study as to the multiple sor- uh, from multiple sources as to high-risk nature of loans that have the underwriting that, that came to uh, uh, be with respect to CRA and Fannie and Freddie's affordable housing, the authors literally missed the forest because of the trees a myopic view that will plague succeeding researchers. They cite a massive season loan study observing that, quote, delinquency rates are low for each loan type and note a 4% rate on government-backed season loans. They neglect to point out this rate is 10 times the rate on conventional loans with a FICO greater than or equal to uh, 660. And the importance of this is that 25 million loans that ended up in the system overwhelmed the system. And of those 25 million, uh, Fannie and Freddie account for 10 million, of which a bunch are CRA. CRA alone accounts for another few million. FHA, of which some are CRA, uh, account for another three, or, uh, three to four million. And so, 16 or 17 million of these 25 lo- million loans are actually attributable back to uh, federal housing policy. This is the actual chart that they show for uh, FHA. Excuse me, for Freddie Mac. These are Freddie Mac statistics. These loans were from the early 1990s. They're at the birth of this process. And the study was done in 1996. uh, And it shows in the first column uh, low FICO regardless of income. But if you had a uh, down payment uh, below in the second group here, you had a down payment um, of, uh, let's see, Loan to value, 81% or more. Yeah, less than 81%. You see these numbers, 32, 29, 22, 27. Regardless of income, the numbers are off the chart. They set one as equal to any income with a high FICO and a LTV below 81% is equal to one. So everything was indexed to one. And as a result, uh, you have a 32, 29, 22 uh, factor relationship. When you combine low... Uh, loan to value, excuse me, high loan to value 
with low FICO, you end up in the 50s and, and high 40s. When you have median high FICOs, you end up in the 20s and the teens. Uh, but even uh, over here, you end up with 11 times over here. And remember, a high FICO is 660. Well, that's the definition that I use and others use for the difference between prime and subprime, represented back in this point in time some 85 to 88 percent of all the mortgage borrowers had that FICO. So it would be like calling a high IQ anything over 80. Uh, that, that would be the same thing. So this high FICO n name is a little bit uh, uh, disconcerting. Um, the, there are other studies uh, that uh, succeeded this. They these studies summarized the 1996 study as saying everything's fine uh, as long as you don't layer. Everything's fine because it doesn't make any difference what the income is. But they ignored all of those relationships, those relationships which have continued to this day. I've provided some detailed performance uh, on um, various things. Uh, John tells me that this Bank of America, they've now said this isn't what they meant. But third federal savings, uh, finding specific uh, uh, disclosures by banks of what their CRA uh, lending is is very difficult, and the, the most clear-cut one that I found is Third Federal. Uh, Shore Bank also, just because they're a community development bank, is also one that's pretty specific. Um, and uh, uh, so that's the, those are some of the specifics, but what, um, in the absence of, of, of uh, a real uh, effort by the regulators to find out what was going on, uh, I created a proxy for national CRA performance since about 50% of the CRA originations since early in this decade were acquired by Fannie and Freddie to help them meet their HUD-mandated goals that um, I then looked at a, a particular uh, batch of loans, the low down payment loans, the high down payment loans, excuse me, the low down payment loans and the low FICO loans. There wasn't a lot of layering going on at Fannie and Freddie. Uh, so these uh, loans uh, uh, tended not to combine those two characteristics. In fact, the uh, low down payment loans had a 693 FICO. Um, but these loans have very high serious delinquency rates. And in another myth, um, when you count all of those not-so-prime loans that Fannie and Freddie have in with their definition of prime loans, it makes the prime loans look like they're performing worse than they are, when in fact the prime loans are, are defaulting at a level that's about one-seventh or one-eighth the amount of these not-so-prime loans. And therefore, the default level even today of the truly prime, the traditionally underwritten loans, is actually quite low, higher than it has been historically, but relative to all these other batches of loans, quite low. And that's... Um, Let's see. So not so prime after all is uh, I've already talked about. Oh, uh, CRA loans are not toxic, I mentioned. Uh, CRA loans have normal returns. Uh, again, the, the regulators, they have, they, regulators speak, I guess, excuse me, Bruce, uh, but they write these uh, uh, reports and they say, well, they told us that they were profitable uh, at least some, somewhat profitable 85% of the time. What the, then the regulators don't really say is, well, they were actually as profitable as normal loans 30% of the time, but they were less profitable than normal loans, which meant they were subsidized 50% of the time. And they, uh, but banks are in the business to make profits. I mean, that's what they're supposed to do. And, of course, when push comes to shove, the loans that had thinner margins ended up being the ones that go underwater first. Not so prime after all I mentioned, causation, 
uh, the CRA and GSE Safety and Soundness Act unleashed two related and simultaneous tidal waves of high-risk lending across the American landscape. There's an expected $9 million, could even be higher to uh, estimate today, where finance, um, uh, an extra, uh, foreclosed loans were financed with subprime and Alte or innovative and flexible lending, and we've had the bailouts, et cetera. Uh, finally, no amendments should, to the CRA should be considered until the appropriate regulators request detailed CRA performance data from Wells Fargo, the four banks, Fannie and Freddie. These six institutions should be able to provide performance information for an estimated 70% of outstanding CRA loans, and we need to know this information so we can learn from our mistakes and before we expand or extend CRA. End of show. I can't talk as fast as Ed, <laughs> so I'll uh, talk more slowly. I've known Ed since uh, we were both students at the University of Illinois in the late 60s when Ed was an undergraduate and I was a graduate student, and I led him astray in the, in the area of doing a study. We did a study on the use of vending machines for the purpose of getting students a bigger share of the revenue over the faculty and staff. And uh, I don't think the, I think he's learned a lot about numbers since then because I think those numbers probably wouldn't stand up. But, uh, so I tried to lead him astray, but I didn't succeed. Um, and I've learned over the years, and, and, and especially in recent years when we've reconnected and talked about numbers, uh, that I'm not going to question Ed's numbers. If somebody else here has better numbers, they, it's not going to be me. Um, it, that whatever you want to make of the numbers and, and whatever, Ed does a, a, a fantastic job of, of getting numbers out of places that nobody else seems to be able to find them and, and be able to discuss them. And I think that's a, a real contribution to the discussion that we ought to be having now about... about um, the mortgage marketplace and, and where things go in the future. Uh, I think that there's great danger um, of um, Washington's way of discussing problems like we're in the middle of and we hope to be coming out of, which is to uh, assign blame and point fingers and, uh, and make it into an ideological shouting match, which is what we seem to do on 24-hour television every day. I don't know who has the time and energy to listen to it. Um, because these are serious matters about um, our economy and about um, how people live in America and what happens to them and what they can aspire to and what kind of government program should or shouldn't exist, um, which people may have differences of opinion on. But it's re refreshing to start with the facts, and I think that's what we're trying to do here, and I think that's what Ed is trying to do, and I think that's really constructive. Um, I, I first got exposed to... Um, to these questions about the mortgage market in the early 80s when we were just coming off of um, what was the beginning of the SNL crisis, although people didn't all recognize it at the time. And that was the world in which we didn't believe in interest rate risk or we didn't know what it was or we assumed it away because it didn't exist for so much period of time from the 30s until the 70s. Um, and we had to learn hard lessons about all of that. Um, with 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 our consequent um, uh, sort of see no evil 
response to it of saying that we'd it, it'd all go away if we could just let the institutions grow out of it. Um, and here we are now having experienced the period in which people decided there was no such thing as credit risk, and we see where that takes us. So deciding risk doesn't exist because you have an objective um, is a really bad thing to do. Uh, and so we need to learn about risk and how to measure it better than we have and, and, and have more honest discussions about which risks we ought to take and who ought to take them and how they ought to be underwritten by whom. Um, and people can differ about all of those questions, but they ought to spend more time on the facts. Um, when I was at the Federal Housing Finance Board, um, we did some work on some alternative um, secondary market. And the one thing I'm very proud of, that some things after I left didn't get regulated the way I would have, uh, but the one thing I'm very proud of is the focus of what we did was on credit risk and finding ways to get credit discipline uh, into the secondary market. And one of the great ironies, it's not one of the causes that Ed identifies, but I think everybody should recognize non-recourse secondary market uh, activity um, was created because of the Basel Capital Rules. The Basel Capital Rules were structured around credit risk and had nothing about market risk in them. So if you held a mortgage on your books, um, you would have to have 4% capital against it. And if you sold the entire market risk, but retained on a recourse basis, and you retained the credit risk 100%, on your books, you held 4%. Obviously, the market risk, depending on the circumstances, the market risk can be much more substantial than the credit risk, depending on what asset we're talking about here, and yet they were treated the same. So who was going to take recourse? Now we're in the skin in the game conversation about this, but without even thinking about it, and in pursuit of an international standard on risk-bearing that had everything to do with international competition and nothing to do with actually understanding risks within our own financial system, we did that. So unintended consequences, you know, are there too. I think a, a non-recourse model in everything contributed to a lot of what we're talking about here. This is a subset of, of what you get when when the originators don't have to worry about the risks. Uh, I think one of the most important things that Ed talks about um, is neighborhood, the neighborhood effect. It's not the theme of his talk exactly, although it describes why you're doing no one any favors when you get a lot of people who tend to live in the same neighborhoods to take the same stretch. If there were one of them or two of them, well, it might turn out badly for them when there are 90% of them in the neighborhood. It turns out to be very bad for everybody in a, in a kind of descending um, vicious cycle. That, uh, and I think that's very important that I don't think anybody's paying attention to that or has paid attention to that. Um, the, the other thing, though, I, I, in, you look at this and you can say this is an attack on CRA. And I don't see this as a discussion about an attack on CRA. CRA is the idea that regulated financial institutions, you can decide whether it should be more than banks, regulated financial institutions as part of a social compact have certain obligations. Um, that does not mean that in discharging those obligations, they're supposed to engage in mindless activities or that regulators are supposed to ignore basic principles of 
uh, assessing risks, managing risks, uh, requiring that risks be covered by some form of um, uh, so, so, some form of capital that's going to absorb them. And uh, we, we, if you take Ed's numbers, what you have had described to you is mindlessness on those issues, perhaps in pursuit of the greater good, perhaps not. I'm not really here to point fingers, but I am here to say that we ought to separate the discussion about the social obligation of various kinds of institutions about which we might have ideological debates from what you do if you have an obligation and whether the obligation can ignore risks because there's an obligation. And so it doesn't really matter. I'm fulfilling, you know, it's, something being socially good doesn't mean it's supposed to be done stupidly. Um, and it really resent the fact that, that these things um, get put together in a lot of this discussion. One of the things that comes out of looking at the numbers from the other way round that's interesting is very high percentages of people apparently don't default in these, you know, badly underwritten categories. I mean, I don't know what we want to call the number, 85 to 90 percent, not serious delinquency. I don't know how you do this over time with respect to these delinquency rates. But if you want to take foreclosure at the end, 5 percent foreclosure rates, which are very high, are still 95% non-foreclosure rates. Now, some of that may be because people sell and people get out, and they may be, and, and I'm not pushing this particular number, but the number's way over 50%. And so to the extent that this whole enterprise was built on the idea of creating opportunity for people who tend to be left behind, left out, not thought about, uh, and get nowhere, there are big numbers of people who apparently, despite the prediction, of being not suitable for, uh, for, for home ownership, they turn out to be able to get some benefit out of this. I don't think, I, I'm not making any conclusion of that. You know, we should therefore ignore all of this data. But I do think we should pay attention to that. And we should try to find out a lot more about uh, who does, you know, what are the characteristics that, that predict that, you don't get into trouble if we can know that. And we don't seem to have tried. I mean, we we're not trying to find out who has got into trouble, so we certainly aren't trying to find out who hasn't and why. But that's, it, it does seem to me that, that if you look at this glass half empty, glass half full, they look, it looks somewhat different. And um, we should not ignore the half full side of this. Now, George Carlin said some people say the glass is half full. Some people say the glass is half empty. I say the glass is too big. And I suppose that's part of the debate that says let's not have CRA at all. Um, but uh, in any case, I think it's very important that we have a fact-based discussion here. I think there are a lot of interesting facts here. I think there are some other facts that we ought to learn that contribute to what I agree with that about. We oughtn't to be expanding or contracting or changing what we think about CRA without actually trying to find out what we're talking about. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Bruce. Bob? Okay, thank you. So first, um, I want to congratulate Ed for courageously taking on this subject. Um, it's uh, very emotional, uh, and um, uh, he has a lot of courage to tackle it, and I commend him to, uh, I commend him in doing a data-driven analysis. Now, I saw an earlier version of these slides, and so here is what I took away from that earlier version, um, three major points, because he put a lot of data on the, on the, uh, on the screen here. Number one, 
the law progressively raised the affordable income targets at Fannie and Freddie, okay? And that's point number one. Number two, a significant portion of the subprime and Alte loans that Fannie, that Fannie and Freddie actually purchased in pursuit of achieving these higher targets were CRA loans, all right? I think Ed's charts established that. And number three, the chart at the end documents that CRA loans extended in recent years have had delinquency rates roughly seven times the average of other Fannie and Freddie loans. Ballpark. Okay. So with these three propositions, uh, Ed makes the argument that CRA, I guess QED, contributed to the crisis. Now, um, I'm going to... uh, well, first, I want to tell you my view of the crisis in a nutshell. And given my age, I don't remember a lot of things very clearly. Um, but wasn't the sort of the, the, the whodunit in the Agatha Christie uh, uh, book, uh, the, murder, uh, the, the Murder on the Orient Express, that everybody did it? Wasn't that the, wasn't that the clincher? Right? Everybody did it, right? All right, so, so I, have the, I have the Agatha Christie view of the financial crisis. All right? You can blame just everybody. Okay, um, and I'm going to get to you just to just to cut to the chase. I'm going to include that CRA is one of the passengers on that on that train. Okay, but there are a lot of other passengers on that train. So um, here's some counterfacts just to keep in mind, and and I'm going to issue these counterfacts not because that they're true, but because um, they they are somewhat maybe inconsistent with what Ed has pointed out. And frankly, I don't know where the truth is, and maybe. It, Ed and his future work can sort this out. So number one is, before 2000, the reason I know about CRA and I think the reason I was invited here is that I did two studies for the Treasury Department with some co-authors on CRA. Um, And our mission was uh, to see whether or not the act was working and so forth, and we drew heavily on the Fed studies. And what we concentrated on, to the best of my recollection, and the reason why it's my recollection is I can't find these studies on the Internet because they were done before 2000, and I don't have copies of them anymore, hard copies. So they exist somewhere, trust me. Um, my recollection is, is that, well, you have them. That's good. That's good. <laughs> he has everything. I have everything. You have everything. It's in your pile of crap that basically was no, useless. he's got it in the useful oh, pile. Oh, he does. You're going to have to show me That's this. Useful. Okay. Here's All right. So, I so, it for you. All right, so my, my recollection is, is that one of the things we drew from the Fed study is that the profitability of CRA loans was not substantially different than the profitability of other loans. Now, it could well be true, that statement could well be true, and Ed's statement could be true, that the CRA loans had a higher delinquency rate. It's just that the banks, you know, charge more uh, for the higher risk. But I think the thrust of our point was is that the, li- the banks were not losing money, so to speak, as of 2000 on CRA loans, all right? Suppose that's true, all right? Now let's roll the clock forward and go post-2000. I think everybody concedes that regardless of what happened before 2000, since 2000, things went off the chart, all right? And CRA loans exploded in volume, et cetera. And what we're really arguing about is what happened after that period, in particular, probably 2003 and 2004, and the loans were concentrated, or at least the originations were concentrated, in four major banks. Okay, so I'm going to give you the following counterfactual, and we'll never know this because we can't run history backwards. Suppose there were never a CRA, 
all right? And then the question is, what is the incremental contribution of CRA given all the other things that were going on in 2000 and through 2008? Loose monetary policy, rising Fannie and Freddie targets. You could make a plausible argument that even if there had been no CRA, with higher Fannie and Freddie targets, there was therefore a government-driven demand for more of these kinds of loans for, for Altay and subprime loans. All right, point one. Point two, in a low interest rate environment, you've got all these investors out there who are yield hungry and they want safe securities. And the rating agencies were out there printing, uh, printing uh, AAA ratings on CDOs. And the, in the same banks that we're talking about, plus Ad Goldman and Morgan and the other guys, uh, Bear Stearns and um, um, uh, uh, Lehman, they were all in the business of generating these securities to meet this insatiable demand for, for seemingly safe securities. And so they invented the CDO, and as long as somebody would put a AAA on it, we get them. And so one could make, I think, a plausible argument that given the Fed policy and the Fannie and, the Fannie and Freddie targets, we could have ended up in roughly the same place even if there had been no CRA. I mean, that, that's a respectable argument. I don't know whether it's true or not, but then the question becomes, what is the incremental contribution of CRA on top of all the other stuff? And... Then we now get to my third point of some, some other studies. I went back and tried to see what other studies have been done on this. And the only one that seems to be recent is a March 2009 study that was done by two Fed economists, uh, Neil Buta and Glenn Cantor, which I'm sure you know about. And what they did is they used Humda data um, to calculate what portion of all the subprime and Alte loans were made by um, – by banks versus non-banks. And it turns out over half of the, of the junkie loans were made by non-banks who were not covered by CRA. So let's keep that in mind. And then the other statistic they have in here, which I find hard to reconcile with the large numbers that Ed has, so I don't know what the truth is, is that according to the Canner study, only 6% of the higher price loans in their study, the higher price meaning the sub-A, Alte, were extended by CRA-regulated lenders to low-income borrowers in low-income neighborhoods, which would have been the target of CRA. So they conclude that CRA would have had only a marginal effect because only a small portion of the overall lending was done by CRA-regulated lenders who were then giving it to low-income people in low-income neighborhoods. You follow me? Okay. So that, that conclusion... I think seems to be somewhat inconsistent with those rising numbers on, on um, Ed's chart. And so here's where I come out, returning to the Agatha Christie story. I think that the dominant factors here were um, the GSE targets, which were driving demand, uh, and this insatiable desire for safe assets. And the private industry and the rating agencies came up with a way to meet this demand. I am willing to concede that CRA probably contributed some additional part of the cause, but I don't know how much. And I'm not going to be in the business of parceling out the percentages. But here's where I want to conclude. I think regardless of what the number is, whether it's 5% or 10% or whatever, I think one thing we have learned from this crisis is that we clearly encouraged home ownership too much among people who couldn't afford homes, all right? And we did it in a non-transparent way. 
All right, we did it. CRA was non-transparent. It was off budget. It was a way to get loans to people without having the government pay for them. All right. The GSE system was non-transparent. All right. We all know that. It was off budget. Um, now, of course, it's on budget, but at the time, it was, it was off budget. And I think the thing we learned in the private sector is the CDOs were all non-transparent. All right. Nobody understood them. And so the, the, the people now who are criticizing CDOs and saying we ought to have a world of transparency in the private sector, I think by logic have to accept the same principle in the public sector. That if we're going to subsidize low-income people, it's got to be through a transparent on-budget process. And it's got to be – these subsidies have to be considered in light of all the other things the government spends money on, whether it's health care or food subsidies or God knows what. And – we clearly know in retrospect one of the reasons we have CRA is that this was a way to get stuff off budget. And I think in retrospect we realize that's a mistake. So going forward, I would hope that we have a legitimate, transparent debate about, about how much money we ought to spend subsidizing people uh, who are creditworthy in some loose sense um, to buy homes. And I think the final lesson we learned and Ed has said this, is that we can't allow people to buy homes with no skin in the game, all right? And the current FHA down payment requirement of 3.5%, I think, clearly is too low. And whether the right number is 5% or whether it's 10%, I don't know, but we ought to have that debate. If I could play God, what I would do is I would run the subsidy program where for a set of qualified borrowers, I would have government matches to a private match. And the private match ought to be at least 5 or 10%. And then I would have some government match and some ratio so that at the end of the day there would be some reasonably thick cushion of equity in the House so that people would not have the incentive to walk away from it. Thank you, Bob. Mark? Hi. I'm, I'm, I'm here as the, uh, the anecdotal uh, guy, not the, not the data-driven guy, the experience-driven uh, experience guy. Um, I've run mortgage operations, and I've seen this from the, from the mortgage originator side. Um, I agree with uh, with Ed's perspective that uh, the CRA and, and the and the GSE targets, to, together with the GSE targets, um, uh, gave uh, drove this and gave uh, a general blessing to the to the mortgage community to do this kind of lending, whether it was actually done as CRA lending or not. Um, and that, in the mortgage world, is like throwing red meat to lions. Um, I, my background before I was in the mortgage business uh, was as a bartender in Georgetown. And um, we had, uh, as bartenders, the bartending community in Georgetown had uh, um, so, uh, somewhat flexible ethical standards. Um, <clears throat> When I went uh, into the mortgage business in the, the late 70s, I found that the mortgage business had way more flexible ethical standards <laughs> than the bar business in Georgetown. So it's a bad idea to give encouragement to, to uh, uh, commission. They get into enough trouble on their own. Yeah, commission-driven mortgage bankers to, to, give, to give them something that looks like a sanction from the government, and, and certainly it acted like a sanction from the government. It sounds like you had a good background to go into the industry. I did. It was yeah. the perfect background, <laughs> believe me. Uh, 
uh, here's what happened since my since since my entry into the business. And I, I incidentally, I entered the business at uh, uh, about the same time. I became a trainee loan officer at uh, about the same time that uh, that RESPA. Uh, came out and uh, and also the CRA came out. So we all, Mark Stam, RESPA, CRA, all entered the mortgage business at the same time. Um, and here's what uh, what what's happened over over that period, in my view, in my anecdotal view. Um, under the the files, the underwriting, the individual loan borrower files have gone from great big thick files to great big thick files, but they contain way different things. The old great big thick files contained lots of borrower information and were, and, and were underwritten to very strict standards. So loans, loans at the time I entered the business were, were generally topped out at 90% at loan to value other than some real specific products that, that were, were not often used. Um, at 90% loan to value, income to debt ratios were 20, were hard 25 and 33, which means 25% housing, 33 for all of your obligations as a percentage of your total monthly income. Um, those changed to 28, 36, hard. Those then gradually stated income became okay. Then gradually stated income, stated asset became okay. Then no documentation, NINA loans, no income, no asset. Then no job became okay. Um, total didn't have to prove you were even working. Didn't even have to assert you were working um, to get a loan. LTV, loans to values during that time went from 90% to 95% to 97% to 100% to, in some cases, 105%. Uh, given to commission salespeople who make a rather large commission on every one of these loans that they can push through the system. Um, anybody that says that the mortgage business is, was an unregulated business or that the banking part of the, mor the, the mortgage part of the banking business was an unregulated business is, is in my opinion, not right. Um, there was uh, excessive, um, excessive regulation. May not have been been targeted to the right things, but there was excessive regulation. Uh, and I owned a bank for about three years, a, a savings bank, and we would have uh, annual exams, and we would have safety and soundness exams, and CRA exams, and we'd have two different for for a while, no longer now, but for a while there were two sets of regulators. There were the safety and soundness regulators from the OTS, and there were the CRA examiners from the OTS, and they'd come about a month apart. And the safety and soundness guys would come in, and they'd say, you're making too many marginal credits. A month later, the, the CRA guys would come in, and they'd say, you're not making enough marginal credits. So we had those conflicting goals to, to, uh, to deal with. And as a small institution, there was a, a great deal of work um, that had to be done to comply with 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 this kind of thing. It was a, it was a tremendous burden on a, on a small institution. Uh, one, he's got this pile. He's got this pile over here. I've got th these are of the CRA regulations. This is one very small part of the CRA regulations. This is these are the CRA exam procedures. 114 pages 
for a, for a small institution. And we'd spend a lot of time getting ready for our CRA exam and trying to characterize, trying to figure out ways to do uh, a flex, a flexible and innovative products and then to prove to the regulators that we were doing flexible and, and innovative products. Um, so um, I've got uh, plenty, plenty of stories about ridiculous things that, uh, that, that were done in, in I, I think, in uh, the kind of the fire was lit by, by CRA and the, and the GSE standards. Uh, I'll give just, just, just one quick one. I can remember getting a call from, from my Fannie Mae rep uh, just uh, through three or four years ago, saying, uh, "Boy, you'd better use our My Community program. It's the best one going. A hundred percent loan to value, five eighty FICOs, and a sixty nine percent income to debt ratio. It's the best around. It beats the Freddie Mac. Uh, was it? Freddie Mac was home home possible." The home possible program. They, I think they topped out at like 55% income to debt ratios. But it still, still did 580 FICOs and 100% loan to values. Or it could be 105 or 107% if you had the right kind of the stars lined up the right way. Um, uh, and just another addition, if I have a minute, do I have a minute? Um, that uh, that the, um, as the ACORN type entities pushed the four large banks, uh, every time they wanted to merge into, into bigger and bigger concessions to do these kind of CRA loans, the, the other lenders, mortgage lenders like me, who couldn't throw away $500 million in, in loss leader loans in order to get my merger done, had to compete with the, the Bank of America ACORN program, which was lending at 4% and a 6% market or any of the other myriad programs. And so, therefore, we, we would have to either lose money or figure out another way to do it or get a, go out of business. Uh, we had lots of we had we had very few good choices in going up against lost leaders that were that were uh, 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 proffered by institutions uh, in, in order to meet their CRA requirements, where where it really wasn't very important to them whether they made money on those loans or not. It was important to us whether we made money on our loans. Um, I I I think uh, the the big takeaway from all of this. Uh, thing that that we're going through that 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 I think was partially caused by by CRA and and uh, uh, at, and the GSE standards is that we're we're going to have a society ten years from now, uh, twenty years from now maybe, where contracts and obligations are considered optional, and that's that's I think going to be the the biggest bad thing that that happens as a result of this credit cards. You don't really need to pay them. Mortgages, you don't really need to pay them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's being reinforced right now by government policy uh, regarding mortgages, certainly. So that's, that's it. Uh, thank you, Mark. John? Yes, yeah, so uh, where to begin? Perhaps I should start graciously and thank the Cato Institute for inviting me to be able to give, share my perspective. I'm particularly glad since I'm my organization is cited as some of the data sources. So, um, And perhaps I can also begin by um, agreeing on the LTV issue. Uh, Gail and I used to argue about this, and Gail would say what you will about her. She was very dedicated to underserved people. And uh, 
you know, approached it different in a different flavor. Uh, but um, I always felt that, just like the banks, I think homeowners needed to have skin in the game. So I, I'm not, uh, I'm not in disagreement. Where where we fall out on how much of that skin in the game needs to be is perhaps where we differ. But, but as uh, Bob said, we can uh, kind of figure that out as we go along. But let me get into the meat of what I want to say because. Um, you know, Ed, I don't know if you know it, but you ended your presentation by saying, end of show. And it was a good show. Um, I'm, for one, you know, I, I, I'm not uh, one of these folks who's, like, totally impressed every time someone gets up and mentions a bunch of numbers and throws some charts up. Because I've, I've, I've grown tired of watching dueling economists who you know, take the same subject and then take their reports and compare it to this other report, and somehow they're in total diverse uh, perspectives. And so at the end of the day, I, um, you know, someone once told me that, um, you know, they invented economists so that uh, astrologists would look good. But, and perhaps there's, you know, perhaps that's unfair. <laughs> yeah, he's a lawyer. That's the defense to my comment. <laughs> okay. Okay, I got gotcha. you. That's a, that's how bad it is. Lawyers who want to admit to being lawyers, not economists. I'm a lawyer too. So, uh, but but here's the thing. Um, you know, like I'll take the example of how he started. He said President Obama said that it wasn't CRA. And and President Obama has gone on to explain that, and he cited some of the studies studies that Bob has cited. But the other folks who said it wasn't CRA are the very folks that he talks about whose banks supposedly suffered from this. So the head of Citi, the head of Wells, the head of Chase, the head of all the big banks, and almost anybody who's intimately involved in the front lines of how these loans happen from a, uh, from a, uh, a perspective of managing large portfolios and making it happen, have said it wasn't CRA that caused this problem. But So if you don't want to believe President Obama or the Federal Reserve, and I think we want to reemphasize what Bob said, you know, that, that recent study, the most recent study, more recent than most of the data that Ed used, said uh, from the Federal Reserve, hardly a bastion of liberal thought, uh, that the uh, percent of high-cost loans that could be attributed or, or done by CRA-regulated institutions was less than 6%. In fact, most of the banks that he cites up there, and to his credit, Ed cited Countrywide and some of the other things which have now been absorbed, but even some of the big banks in those days, Ed, who were doing these kind of loans that really were problematic, high cost, that, that really, I think, brought this country down, our economy down, were done by either the mortgage side of those financial institutions or by independent mortgage companies. Can you all say AmeriQuest, New Century, Option One, uh, Countrywide? All those, all those institutions that have since failed and got out of business because of, you know, because of their bad business practices. But also in the banks, you may not know this, Ed, but it's a, it's a ridiculous rule that the regulators have. The banks get to pick and choose whether or not they want to co count their operating subs. So City Financial, Citibank gets to decide whether they want to count what City Financial does for CRA purposes. And they don't. All these major institutions didn't count all those subprime high costs because they would, those loans would have been flagged by the CRA regulators as not being safe and sound. And I want to say that. Here's, here's the CRA law. It's all of a page and a half, and, you know, uh, two-thirds of it is definitions. But here's what it says. B financial institutions have an affirmative obligation to meet the credit needs of the communities from which they're chartered to serve uh, safely and soundly. 
including, not, not only, but including low and moderate income neighborhoods. But safely and soundly is in the law. It's in the statute. It's not in the regulation. And so aside from the fact that a very small percentage of these were originated by CRA regulators, aside from the fact that it has to be safely and soundly, you know, I, you know, I, I had lunch recently with Alan Greenspan because he was in the Wall Street Journal uh, cited by uh, probably the person in my book who, who created more of this problem than anybody. He's probably a patron saint of the Cato Institute, and that's uh, Sen- Senator uh, Phil Graham. Uh, but Senator Phil Graham wrote a, uh, an article in which he uh, cited uh, Chairman Greenspan as saying CRA contributed. And when I had lunch with, with uh, Chairman Greenspan, I'm like a pet community guy for him. Um, he graciously, plus he confuses me with the John Taylor who's, who is the conservative at Treasury uh, under the Bush administration. So when I call his office and say, John Taylor wants to speak with you, he, it always comes back, which John Taylor? And I always say, the good John Taylor. But, uh, and I've actually become the good John Taylor because the other John Taylor is actually quite critical of the chairman these days. So, but he graciously sits with me. And we've gone through this. And, and really, looking at the minuscule, I mean, this whole presentation is CRA's contribution to this financial debacle, you know, if you allow me to paraphrase Ed. But the truth is, and you're not going to get me to sit here and admit that it had anything to do with it because it had the regulators been doing their job, even whatever minuscule loans were done under the guise of CRA, they should never have ever been done in an unsafe or unsound manner. I've always said to the financial institutions, you want to kill CRA? Make a bunch of bad loans. This wasn't – let's talk about what it really was about. And look, just because you support the free market, that doesn't mean you can't be critical of it. You know, even Adam Smith – the, the, the most important thing for a, a healthy democracy is a free market. But don't leave out the second part of his statement, uh, overseen by a rule of law that ensures fairness. And, and um, you know, uh, I'm paraphrasing him now, but it ensures that it's done in, a, in an ethical way. That's, that's what really happened here. We had Wall Street flush with a lot of money looking for investments because at the time, investments in mortgage-backed securities and CDOs in the United States was a good investment for people in Iceland and the French Dental Pension Association and everybody else. Double-digit returns was a great thing. And so you had all these young guys fresh out of, you know, Dartmouth and Harvard and Yale and business schools, and they're sitting there, and they're earning $10 million a year just moving this money, and they, but they saturated the market in terms of where to invest. And so they turned around, and, and at the same time, and here's the convergence, the Basel Accords that Bruce mentioned. Up until 2001, basically Fannie and Freddie had the advantage. If you had a Fannie and Freddie secured loan for, from Basel Accord, the, the capital reserves for you was, was, were the least amount that you needed to have on, if, you, it was a, if it was a Fannie or Freddie securitized loan. Well, guess what they did in 2001? They said, or unless it's AAA rated, the rating agencies. And who pays the rating agencies? These very same investors and banks who bring these portfolios to the agency says, here, rate these. And by the way, rate it good. Otherwise, I go to Moody's or I go to S&P, you know, to your competitor. And here's the thing. If you don't think that happened, consider this. Those high-cost loans that were really the bad loans that Ed and others have referred to that were created by these non, mostly non-bank institutions – 85% of those high-cost loans were AAA rated. These rating agencies, 
I'm trying to think of a nice word for it, but really stuck it to the American public and to the American economy by, by colluding with these investors. And the investors said to these brokers and to these lenders, make any loan, we will buy it. So no documentation, low documentation, it didn't matter. And all the broker, for those who don't know, all the broker had to be, or that loan office had to be concerned with, is that that borrower paid their loan for three months. Sometimes it was six months. Between the three to six month period, your fee became permanent. So they knew. I mean, all you got to do is look at a lot of these loans, and you would know. Well, this was an unsustainable loan. Why would they make this? Because they got their fee, and they weren't on the hook for it. They had no skin in the game. This went to Wall Street. Wall Street made its money, and those young guys who were moving made their fees, and the, the folks who really got it stuck to them were the investors and the American public as a whole, because this malfeasance in practice. And watching this all happen were the regulatory agencies. And make no mistake about it, we spent a lot of time talking to people under the Clinton administration, talking to people under the Bush administration, that these loans were unsustainable, they were unfair, and they were going to create problems. I have letters going back to when Ellen Seidman was head of the OTS, and then all through the Bush administration saying, this is problematic. And when did the Federal Reserve, which had the authority f since 1994 from Congress to issue unfair and deceptive rules and practices to prohibit the kinds of things that we all know happen now? 1994, Congress gave them a th that authority. When did they finally move to actually end all these low doc, the things that, that um, I'm sorry, uh, Mark uh, referred to? When did they finally move to actually do this? <laughs> July of 2008. This is long after the market collapsed. This is after Wall Street itself stopped securitizing these things. This is after all these loans had stopped being made. Finally, the Federal Reserve moved. And so, you know, you can, it's sort of like, it's almost like a chick a little, little thing. It's, you, you, well, you can continue to say it's CRA, but it's just the facts don't support it. What really drove this is the free market that we all love and adore that's made this a great country. But if we can't be critical about the malfeasance and the inappropriate behavior and the greed that, that can really distort a, a great democracy and a great capitalist system, if we can't do that in a way that's critical enough to really correct those kinds of things, instead, you want to blame poor people for having brought down this nation? How silly is that? We need to make sure this market is fair, it's equitable, it's ethical, and it doesn't, take, it doesn't create the opportunities where lenders like Mark are saying, you know, gee, money's everywhere, I can do this, someone's going to buy it, because his thing is get his fee, get in and out. And, and I don't agree with whether it's 100% down. I, I said that, Ed. I don't agree in doing stuff in which the, really the risk is taken totally out of the hands of everybody involved. I think we need to have that. So... Let me conclude by, um, by saying that, um, you know, you, you, you've been out of the banking business for a while. You're in the independent mortgage business, right? Uh, in mortgage business until about a year and a half ago. A mortgage business until a year and a half ago. Well, then you should know. You talked about the regulatory burden of CRA. The American bankers talked a lot about this, American Banker newspaper. And they always list CRA as the least regulatory burden of all the regulatory burdens that are imposed on financial institutions. And I don't doubt, because I hear from enough, that there's a lot of paperwork for financial institutions. But the problem is not CRA, and particularly for small banks, because 
most of you may not know this, but a, a CRA exam for you, for a small bank, only occurs every five years. So in a, ten, in a nine and a half year period, you might have seen these examiners once. Big banks, it's more frequently, every two or three years. But they have departments and capabilities of responding to that. So, you know, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater or the concept of home ownership being a, va a very valuable thing. The Heritage Foundation, I love to be able to cite conservative organizations when I, when I make my points, but the Heritage Foundation maintains that home ownership is the most stabilizing influence for any neighborhood. So it's a good thing uh, to aspire to. Should there be people who would not get these loans? Absolutely. Because they're not ready? Absolutely. Or because the risk is so great, it doesn't make sense? Absolutely. But the folks who need to decide that, there's n the, the desire to become a homeowner is not something that all of a sudden grew overnight. It's always been an ideal for people in the American public. What we always had, though, up until very recently, less than 10 years ago, is we had a financial services system that would not make you a loan if they didn't think you could afford to pay it back. What a novel concept. You overlay an affirmative obligation to make sure you don't ignore low and moderate income people when it comes to mortgages with that concept of being responsible in your lending activities. And we have the kind of robust and competitive and envy of the world financial services system that we once had. But you take that stuff away, the regulatory oversight, the ability of people who are not regulated the way banks are, independent mortgage companies, credit unions, and you allow them to practice what they want, we end up with the kind of situation we're in. So blame CRA. The facts really don't support you. Um, you can say it until you're blue in the face, and I suppose you know people will go on and say, well, I heard this great presentation. I can't repeat everything. There are a lot of numbers and shots. But the truth of the matter is it had very little to do with this economic fiasco that we're in and continues to have very little. And that position is supported by the banks themselves, the major banks who are the uh, biggest uh, purchasers of, of loans and, and, and maker of mortgages in this country. So thank you very much. Thank you, thank you, John. I appreciate the comments and certainly very glad to hear that you're enthusiastic, as I think we all are, about actually everybody having some skin in the game from the borrower to the lender to the investor. Um, I think we have a little bit of time uh, left for questions. I know we went a little bit long. Uh, gentleman here in the corner. Hello, uh, my name is Arnold King. I live in uh, Prince George County, Maryland. I want to thank you guys for having a discussion. This was a great discussion, very educational. But however, I got a question now. Don't you guys think that the SHA, CIA, and her housing room conflict with each other? I mean, who are the who are the losers? Could it be government? Could it be everybody? And also, what do the individuals in the financial industry, such as the bankers, mortgage broker, and others, think about think about the uh, role, think about the uh, disaster that we've been into? Cause they had, cause nobody had had done studies on them. They study how they feel and what and what happened when a when they were and deal with. Uh, Piles are instant piles are application loans and so forth. That's my big concern about it. The first question had to do with FHA and who else? Whom else? CRA and HUD. Uh, I think uh, 
and I can sort of explain some of the myths that John fell into. Uh, when, when I talk about CRA lending and, and these charts I put up, 85 to 90 percent of those loans were not high-rate loans. They were not called subprime. They were not put into uh, uh, subprime mortgage-backed securities. That's what they were not, and I admit that. I, I discovered that, um, and I have substantiated that. Um, but some of them were FHA loans, I, I believe about 10 to 15 percent. I believe upwards of half of them, particularly after 2000 to 2001, uh, when Fannie and Freddie really got ramped up, uh, were CRA uh, loans. And I believe uh, the remainder that didn't go into the subprime uh, securities were uh, held by the banks or sold by the banks, other banks, uh, as CRA loans in their portfolios. Um, I would add that one of the things that, that uh, was a great business that, that Countrywide had uh, which was working with HUD, another one of this alphabet soup, uh, they announced a, a trillion dollars in uh, uh, commitments. They actually fulfilled $780 billion of it. Uh, Angelo Mozilla was honored in 2004 as the Housing Person of the Year by the National Housing Conference because of all the great work he had done originating these loans. These are all of the announcements, uh, there are dozens of them, by the big banks of all of their community lending. Uh, that they put out in their annual reports as CRA-related lending. Uh, all I know is what they said about them. Uh, I can't answer, you know, what John said. I just know they called it CRA lending, and uh, that's what they said it was. Uh, and WAMU had their community partnerships, turning dreams into reality. We all know about WAMU, and this was their 19, uh, 2006 report. Uh, so there's a lot that was going on here with all these alphabet soups, but at the end of the day, it resulted in these trillions and trillions of dollars being lent, uh, much of it to people that ultimately, you know, couldn't afford it. To, to Bruce's point, uh, FHA has now uh, publicized what their expected default rates are for their 2006, 7, and 8 books, and their over their 20 percent or more is their estimated claim rate. And so I believe ultimately we're going to see claims on these loans, even going back to 2004 and 5, through a good chunk of 2009 that are going to be in the 15 to 20 to 25 to 30 percent range, and I believe a lot of the CRA lending that I've documented is going to fall into that 15 to 25 percent range also, which is too much under stress is way too much for the system to bear. You can't deal with the winners and losers under that because, as, as I think Bruce said, the neighborhood effect, which I call a systemic-type risk, it's not just a credit card going bad that doesn't affect somebody else. That house going bad into a foreclosure spreads uh, among the other houses like a contagion uh, because it impacts the values of the other homes and it impacts what other people see uh, is going on and therefore it has a contagion effect. So what, I need to add to that because let me, in case you don't know this because you might have been confused by that last comment and this slideshow, Fannie and Freddie are not covered by CRA. They have affordable housing goes that a regulator is supposed to enforce to see to it that they, you know, don't just, that they don't have this government benefit of this, this guarantee, an applied guarantee, and that they only go out and compete with the free market or the independent market uh, with this benefit and, and not do something that's socially beneficial, again, safely and soundly. But they're not covered by CRA. And furthermore, uh, I don't think we need to tell anybody in this audience, if you really look at where these foreclosures are occurring, it's not just in low-income neighborhoods, and it's just not black people and Latino people. It's whites all over the place and all over the suburbs. This was a 
market-driven fiasco of making loans to people who uh, bit off more they can chew, who assume when the broker and the lender told them, don't worry, you'll be able to refinance. And as Ed said, housing prices don't always continue to go up. I agree with that. But that's what people were told. You'd be able to refinance with greater equity in your house, and you don't need to worry. I, 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 we run a foreclosure prevention program where we help people, and you would be surprised. I had one couple come in. The husband and the wife were both mortgage brokers who were in foreclosure. I mean, you might, you'd be surprised at the educated people, the whiteness of these people who are caught up in this. And it's not CRA. It's just the free market gone wild. Video to come. I, 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 I think this is a point worth, worth parsing out because I know a lot of the discussion has mixed Franny and Freddie with CRA, uh, and I think it's very important to keep in mind, you know, Freddie and Fannie at the height of the market purchased about 40 percent of the subprime mortgage-backed securities out there. They were the largest single source of liquidity for the subprime market, uh, but they were not covered by CIA, and I think it's a very legitimate point. I would contrast a little bit. I don't by any stretch of the imagination consider Freddie and Fannie uh, artifacts of the free market. But that's my own <laughs> viewpoint. But uh, I think we've only got time for well, a couple more questions. Let me just say this thing about so. Fannie and Freddie. Yes, they were not lenders. But I, I can testify to this firsthand. Gail Zincata came into my – well, actually, they came in, 150 people came into the lobby of Fannie Mae, and David Maxwell called me up in 1986 and said, Ed, there's 150 people in the lobby. Go talk to them. <laughs> and I did. And I said, Who, you know, what do you want? And he said, we want some CRA loans to be bought by Fannie Mae. And I said, okay, fine, let's talk. And we sat yep. down and talked. Yep. That was in 1986, and we put together a program. And but if you read the legislative history, which is replete, how did um, those loans? Wait, do let it? me finish. I let you finish. Sorry, without interrupting. That. Yeah, sure. Uh, if you read the legislative history, which is replete, and I've got the books here that show it, you will find that the whole purpose of getting the affordable housing requirement into the Fannie and Freddie Act was so that Fannie and Freddie could buy and facilitate the origination and purchase of CRA lending. Not just CRA lending, but no. that was a right. large chunk of it. When I say that Fannie and Freddie purchased 50 percent, I am talking about Fannie and Freddie's own published data, that, uh, uh, in particular Fannie's published data that they published in 2003 that said how many CRA loans they were buying. Uh, again, if they lied, I can't answer that. All I can say is what they said. And then when I look at the loans that are actually in their system uh, that they disclose, they are not high interest rate loans. They are not the kind of predatory lending loans that John talks about. What they are are the exact same loans. They're fixed rate. They're owner occupants. I'm talking about the high LTV loans. They're owner occupants. They're not NAGAM. They're at normal interest rates. They're um, uh, not Alt-A. They're none of the things that I've admitted CRA, by and large, 90% of it isn't. And so, again, I don't know where we get into this argument, but I'm saying CRA is not that, but Fannie and Freddie's high LTV loans are that. May I say something, Ed? Very quickly, because yeah. I don't want to get no, an opportunity for I, I think if you, Gail Sincata, God rest her soul, died a few years back, so she's not here to defend her position. But I, but I think that if you recall what she asked for, Ed, and, and what, what Maxwell uh, consented to or conceded to, uh, that those things are not what caused this problem. Uh, and, in fact, hang on a second. Fannie and Freddie, during that period of time, was quite profitable, kept moving up the list of Fortune 500 companies, and really throughout the 90s. You know, the biggest increase in minority home ownership loans, originations, occurred in 93 and 94. Was an, almost 99% of it was prime loans. And those loans performed well. It all changed 
when we hit the, the aughts, the 2000s, when we began to see uh, a flood of money, deregulation, uh, and a growth of an industry that were not covered by CRA, that began to – Fannie and Freddie – in 2000, in 2001, Fannie and Freddie had $2.7 trillion in market share, in assets, under, under their books. $2.7 trillion. By 2003, that had been reduced to $1.7 trillion because that other non-regulated segment, the AmeriCrest New Century's option one countrywide, non-regulated really, I mean, you talk to the FTC, they had two people to run that whole thing. Um, but you, you look at that and it's like Fannie and Freddie finally said, hey, are we going to be relevant to this market? We had better get into this business. And that's when they got into this business of Alt-A, you know, uh, funny money, low doc, you know, purchasing a lot of this market share, which got us all into trouble. But they followed the market. It wasn't them leading the market. Well, I mean, I, I, think, that's, I think that's a legitimate point. It's certainly worth pointing out that about a fourth of Fannie's business was countrywide alone. Uh, and the vintages of the subprime market that have really come back to haunt us are those vintages where Freddie and Fannie were in the market in force. I think we've got time for two quick questions. Uh, Peter, <laughs> do you... Thank you. Uh, there are two narratives here. Um, hello, John. One is this on? Yeah, it is. Um, one narrative is that uh, the problem was caused by deregulation, as you said many times, and the mortgage brokers who mm -hmm. were trying to make a profit and made these loans uh, to to these people who couldn't afford homes uh, shouldn't have been received these loans. Mm -hmm. um, and the other narrative, which I think is somewhat more, uh, more accurate and is supported by uh, Ed's data, is that it was the government demand for these loans which produced them. You can't actually make a bad loan if no one is going to buy it. And it turned out that there was a buyer for these terrible loans, John. Sure and we know that that's true. If we, if we accept Ed's data, and it looked good to me, 17 million of the 25 million subprime and other bad loans are on the books of Fannie and Freddie, mm -hmm. FHA, or mm -hmm. on these four large banks that made these loans as part of mm -hmm. uh, their commitments to Acorn and others to make uh, CRA-type loans. And in fact, the National Community Reinvestment Coalition was proud of this. You published in your 2007 annual report that uh, between 1997 and 2007, $4.5 trillion in CRA loans had been made. So, so the, point, the point I'm trying to make here is that it is not right to argue, it seems to me, based on the numbers that Ed has, it's not right to argue that deregulation or, or lack, of, lack regulation of regulation of mortgage brokers was what caused all these terrible mortgages to be made. It sounds to me as though the mortgage brokers and others were doing exactly what anyone would do, and that is if someone appears in your doorway with money and says, I will buy whatever junk you can produce, right. you produce it. Right. That's except, the good old American the way. The government so, or the community groups never wanted well, the point, ever the point, however, is loans to be to made that were unsustainable. But that's an important point because it, it, your, your premise falls apart if you understand that, that, uh, that, that because someone is inspiring you to try to do more lending to low-wealth people, 
That does not mean that you're allowed to do an abusive, unsustainable loan. No, and, and that's the way true. to ensure that that doesn't you're, happen you're right, is John. adequate regulation, right, John, which did look, not exist for the independent mortgage right, but companies. Look at look at the government policy involved here. Yes, they're inconsistent. The government was was saying to Fannie Mae and was saying to FHA and it was saying to the banks that were trying to make oh, had to make CRA loans. It was yeah. saying, "We want to see those loans on your books. Mm-hmm. We want to see them there." And and oh yes, by the way, they have to be good loans. Well, and, so, yeah. except they had to be flexible also. But the point the point is a flexible that good loan. the point is that the government really wasn't saying to the people who were who were buying these loans at, at Fannie and Freddie and at CRA and and so forth, and at the banks that were required to make these CRA loans or at FHA. These loans have to be good loans. You have to have 20% down payment or at least 10% down payment. They weren't saying that. They were saying, we want to see the loans. We want to see them flexible, and we want to see them being made. And that's, how, that though, puts you, the responsibility let me, let me where it really belongs Let me say here. earlier that might help you understand this. <laughs> and that is uh, when a CRA exam is done on a financial institution, a, a big bank, um, your, their assessment of whether you're doing enough CRA loans is compared to your other financial to, to your market, to the market needs, and then to what other lenders are doing in that market. So if all the lenders are doing, like, you know, I'll just throw out these figures, 5% of the loans to low and moderate income households, and you're a bank that's doing 1%, then the regulator is supposed to step in and say, we want to see you do more. But never ever is it do more and forget about whether they're risky or forget about whether they're unsustainable. And whether the regulators did that job, because I don't think it was just the lack of regulation. I think that's particularly true for independent mortgage companies. But whether the regulators who were supposed to regulate it did their job is also, I think, part of the problem. But do not take the law, like a civil rights law, and say, oh, well, you know, uh, folks are supposed to be able to sit at whatever lunch counter they want, and, and if they can pay for the sandwich, they, they should be able to go there. Well, some fights have broken out, so it's a bad law, you know. No. The law needs to be enforced according to the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, which is safe and sound lending. You don't help low-income communities and communities of color by putting a lot of crap out there that's unsustainable. In fact, homeownership rates for low-income and, and minority people are less than what they were before this lending debacle that began really in earnest in 2001. So it, it didn't help any communities, and communities, the, the ones that are suffering the most are the low-wealth communities that are losing incredible value. So we're not for any of this. You know, we're for fairness. We're for, you know, particularly institutions that get a government benefit. Now we now know all these financial institutions get a government benefit, right? I'm with you on that one. You know, we now know they all have the full faith in banking. Well, if you're going to do that, be fair and don't ignore working-class blue-collar people who are working their way up the economic ladder because that's in the interest of our capitalist system. Thank, thank uh, you, Joe. I, we've, I, we've gone market well, real quick. I made, I, made a comment, I made a comment earlier that, that I didn't follow through on, and I think it's somewhat germane to that. Um, I, I said when I started in the business in the 70s, the files were thick. When I ended the business, the files were thick, but they were thick with different things. They were thick in the in the 70s. They were thick with borrower information. In in 2007, they were thick with regulatory stuff. They were just as thick, but it was it was practically no borrower information, but all kinds of regulatory this and that and sign off and that 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 that. It just got enough. thick. 
thicker and thicker and thicker. Well, I, I'm going to apologize. I know we have a few questions left, but we've gone far over our time, and we'll have no time for lunch. So I, I do want to, if we can make it real quick, very quick. Is this on? Okay, everybody's guilty. We all know that. We accept that. Now, I guess I'm going to address my question to Mr. Litton and perhaps Mr. Stamp. Everybody's guilty. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the whole slew, everybody. When we talk about affordable housing, you mentioned that, one, who sets the HUD guidelines for affordable housing? You said something about the law. is HUD does it, but who, I don't know who sets the law. Who writes those guidelines? Second question has to do with you mentioned um, home ownership. That's the American dream. But doesn't we are and this administration again is giving out more money to people to bail them out from the home ownership. Do we need to change that message to say if you don't want to own a home, that's fine. You can be a renter and and, and not have a mortgage, and it's okay not to be a homeowner in. Because I see trouble, as Mr. Stam said, in the next 10, 15, 20 years with the lack of money to pay off mortgages. So the HUD thing and home ownership and everybody's guilty. And the people from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the banks have walked away with great bonus packages, what have you. you, think yeah, you can I'll, I'll make it real quick. The, the HUD limits were set by HUD. Okay, so uh, it's, the, it's, the, it's the Housing and Urban Development Department. So that them. I mean, the... the they, 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 have, they have authority to change, to change. They're a candidate agency, and they can change the rules. Then they report to the president, you know. So, um, and then just on your other point, and I think I know we all have to go, I think we all, I think one thing I think we can all agree on is that we've pushed the, the homeownership ideal beyond its limit, and now we realize it's prudent homeownership. And I think we can all agree with that. Well, I'm sorry, but 80 to 90 percent of the bad loans were refis. They weren't. They were not new loans. But that's important. It's not new homes. It's not mortgages. I want to invite everybody upstairs for lunch in the Winter Garden, and thank you for your uh, patience.